Beloved congregation in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, we are coming to this little epistle to the Colossians that the Apostle Paul wrote, and it coincides with the little epistle to Philemon. As you remember that Philemon is, uh, was from Colossae, and it was his house that the church gathered to worship. So they gathered in, the, in Colossae, in the house of Philemon, and Aphia and Archippus, his, his wife and his son, and also Onesimus, after a year and then returned to be with Philemon again, to, to be that slave, to be that brother in the Lord Jesus Christ. So the Apostle Paul then speaks to the Colossian church. He speaks to the believers that are there at Colossae. Paul himself was never at Colossae. Uh, this church, as we saw here in verse 7 and 8, it was Epaphras who was the pastor in the church in, uh, in Colossae. And Epaphras at this time had brought some news to the Apostle Paul about the church at Colossae and the struggles that were going on in the Colossian church. Now, just thinking about if you can get a geography, a picture uh, of Asia Minor, and you can see that there are three particular churches that are in close proximity, and they are mentioned actually in chapter 4 of this uh, epistle to the Colossians. And it's uh, the believers that are there in Hierapolis. Uh, there are also believers that are in Laodicea, and there are believers that are at Colossae. And all of those three are in pro close proximity to one another, probably within 75 or 100 miles of, uh, of, at length. Now, uh, thinking about that with proximity, that was about 1,000 miles from Rome in that area. Now, it was in the area of Lysus, and they called it the Lysus Valley. And in the Lysus Valley, these three churches resided. And there was, Galatia was to the east of that. You have Asia to the, the south. You have Bithynia. You have Pamphylia. And they're all in that surrounding regions. But the churches were in those particular regions. That's why it's referred to in Galatia, the churches of Galatia. Because there was northern and southern churches in the Galatia region. So in this region of Lysus, they called this the Lysus Valley. It was a fertile valley. It was a fertile area. There were lots of volcano and volcanic activity there, which made the soil uh, rich. And that soil being rich, it was able to provide for all kinds of vegetation. So thinking about the culture then, and thinking about uh, the, what they would produce, there were lots of sheep, and therefore they produced lots of wool. And so that would be one of the products that would come out of that area of Colossae because of the fertile ground on which the city uh, resided. So lots of vegetation, lots of grass, lots of sheep farming, agricultural area, uh, agrarian society, and lots of farming that went on there. But it was a city that was mixed predominantly Gentile, paganism, with some Jewish scattered in throughout the community. And so when you have that going on then in the life of the church, you're bound to have some difficulties and some problems. And this is what Epaphras, going to the Apostle Paul, who is in prison in Rome, and speaking to him about good things that are going on in the church, but also speaking about some difficult things, some negative things, because you have both. 
I could speak of good things going on in this congregation. Many good things. And I could speak of many bad things as well. Because where you have sinful people that come together, you always have problems and difficulty. Satan makes sure that there is always problems in the life of the church. We ought not to be ignorant of the devices of Satan. But they go on in the life of the church. And in the life of a congregation, any particular congregation, you are always going to have wheat and tares mixed in. Now, I'll simply say this. That not everybody in here, as a member of this congregation, is on their way to heaven. I didn't pull out any particular names. I'm just simply saying that this is what the scriptures teach. There are people who are members of the congregation who are not born of the Spirit of God. They simply have gone through the motions all these years. Uh, Their parents raised them up in the life of the church and they don't know anything else. So by just simply by traditional things, this is what we've always done. They keep on coming. Uh, You know, when other things come up, they go and do those things. But they're trusting in that. Not trusting in Christ. They don't have a desire for the things of Christ. It's just simply a traditional thing. Maybe a societal thing. Maybe it's just what we do. They don't want to be thought of badly by the surrounding community. So they they call themselves a member of the church. But they're tares that are mixed in. Satan is the one who sows in the tares. He brings people in. And they profess one thing. And they live another thing. They say, but that's not their doctrine. They just simply regurgitate or repeat. but They're not actually believing these particular things. Satan is a master of confusion. He is a master of delusion. He is a master of schism. He is a master of gossip and slander and backbiting and division. He is a master at getting your focus on something else. As I've said before, it wasn't about this, but you thought it was about this. He is a master of distraction to get you focused on something else other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's a master at that. Whenever you find gossip, slander, backbiting, schism, division in the life of the church, that is not of God. That is of the devil. And whether the people that are doing it are of the devil or whether or not they are, unbel- they are dis- disobedient Christians, I don't know. I can't see the heart. Even the Apostle Paul, notice this, he said in verse 23, if you continue, because known to God alone are the elect. Now I can know that I am one of the redeemed. I can know that because the Spirit of God bears witness with this child of God that they are truly children of the living God. I can know that, but I can't know that for you and you can't know that for me. This alone is what the Spirit of God does through the Word of God testifying to each one of us that we are children of the living God. Now, if you're not in the Word of God, how do you call yourself a child of God? Where you have no desire to hear the word of God. You have no desire to hear the voice of God as he speaks through his word. How do you call yourself a child of God? Uh, That would be like a child who disregards everything that their parents say. That child ends up 
leaving the home because it won't listen to the parents, disregards, marginalizes, and walks away from the parents. So it is in the church of Jesus Christ. So we can't be ignorant of the devices of Satan, and, and Satan always brings something. We are not, as Paul says in Ephesians 4, to be children tossed to and fro by every wave and wind of doctrine. In other words, no ability to discern. We can't discern the things that are from the Spirit of God and the things that are from the wicked one. But we have the Word of God. We ought to be able to discern whether this is of God or this is of the devil. Whether this is the city of God or the city of man. Because the philosophy of the city of man gets mingled in with the city of God here on earth. And so this is one of the problems that was going on in the life of the Colossian congregation and undoubtedly spread to other congregations as well. We don't have any letter, we don't have any epistle that deals with the church, with the people in Hierapolis. We only have mention made of it. We don't have a letter to the epistle of the Laodiceans, but clearly there was one because the Apostle Paul says, when you have read this epistle... Give it to the Laodiceans, and likewise the Laodiceans, the epistle to you. We don't have that today. Uh, God has not provided that for us. Clearly that was not an inspired epistle. Otherwise, we would have had that epistle. We have all that is necessary for doctrine and life in what is given to us in the, the 66 books. That are one, one, that are one whole book of Scripture. So in the life of the Colossian church, uh, there were the difficulties of, the basic one was syncretism, that is always Jesus plus something else, the Bible plus something else. When men start with men, that's what you have. You'll have desires of pleasure, desires of preference, Desires of wanting this or wanting that. Or looking around and seeing what other people are doing and want to incorporate that into the worship of God. We are to be bold and to stand against that that comes against the church continually. We're susceptible to that, beloved. We have a weakness towards that. We have a weakness of wanting to be men-pleasers. We ought to pray every day that we be not men pleasers, but that we strive to please God. If you strive to please God, you will please the people of God. You won't please the unbelievers, but you'll please the believers. Striving and aiming and directing your life to please, to honor, to glorify God. Not to bring other things alongside of faith. Alongside of the Bible. Alongside of Jesus. But knowing that when we have Him, we have all that is necessary to our salvation. We need nothing other than Christ. He is our redemption. He is our all in all. Paul will also deal with the worship of angels that was going on in the Colossian church. The difficulty that Paul deals with there is 
that there are some that are turning to angel worship, which the scripture prohibits. That's idolatry. There is the, uh, the syncretism of asceticism. Thinking that we can do certain things to the body to bring ourselves into a greater holiness. There is the Gnostic heresy that stirs up. In other words, a greater source and sense and ability of knowledge. And so there is a guru that you must come to. And the scriptures are not enough. You need guru so and so. So it can give you a higher sense of knowledge. They speak not according to the word. It's because there is no truth in them. What we need is the truth of God's word. No gurus, no worship of angels, no syncretism, no asceticism. Christ and Christ alone. He is the hope of glory. So this is what Paul is dealing with in this little epistle. And like the apostle Paul does in uh, the other epistles, he wrote 13 epistles of the New Testament. And like he does... He begins and he speaks basically the first couple of chapters. Again, false division. There was no such division in the original manuscripts. This is something that was supplied. Nothing sinful about it. It's helpful to know directions, to, to be able to go specifically to a verse. But it, it wasn't originally in the, in the scriptures. Uh, but the Apostle Paul deals with the indicative. He gives statement of facts. He is declaring who we are. Our identity in Jesus Christ. The, the book of Colossians is a lot about identity. The apostle uses this phrase. It's, it's really a signature phrase of the apostle Paul. En Christo. In Christ. He uses it over a hundred times in his epistles. And it speaks of unity with Christ. Christ who is our life. Our identity in Jesus Christ. He speaks that over and over again. That the believer is truly in union with Jesus Christ. So um, then he comes about chapter 3. And he becomes with the imperative. Or the commandments. In light of what God has done. Who he is. What Christ has done. Who he is. What the Holy Spirit does. And who he is. This is how you now live as the redeemed. This is how you strive. This is what you put off. This is what you put on. This is how you live your life. Not a perfect life. It's directional. This is the direction as Christians of how we are to live. It's not practical perfection. There is none. None of us have practical perfection. All of us combined together don't have practical perfection. There is no practical perfection on this earth. We have a partial sanctification. We are growing in grace. It seems to me, when I read the scriptures, when I see the people of God, it seems to me that the wheels of sanctification grind slowly. The Holy Spirit works slowly. I think that's why the Apostle Paul instructed Timothy uh, with regards to the church to be patient. To be long-suffering. In season and out of season. Keep on being patient in preaching and teaching and ministering the word with all long-suffering and patience. Exhort, rebuke, admonish, encourage. Keep on doing it. And it's hard. It's hard to keep on doing it. And that's why the admonishment that goes forth. So, 
Paul then commands us to live a certain way as believers. It won't be perfect, but it certainly will be distinct. It will be different from the ways of the world. And so he begins, notice in our text this morning, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. Let's just deal with this first verse. Paul. Paul who was formerly Saul, Saul of Tarsus. Saul was born a, a citizen um, of, as he said, no mean city, a city of great means, a city of, of great authority, a city of, that is established, a city that had great stature. It's the Apostle Paul. It's a Roman citizen. And so he is Saul of Tarsus, whom the Lord redeems and changes his name. And his name, Paul, Paulos, means little. Now, interesting, isn't it? Because Paul, who was formerly Saul, who was of the tribe of Benjamin, that would be named after then King Saul, who then just think about this, Paul called little, is little in his own eyes. He's a humble man. Paul shows great humility in speaking the truth. He knows that salvation of the Lord. He knows that he's redeemed simply by the grace of God in Christ Jesus. It's not of his doing. It's not of his willing. It's not of his running. It is completely and fully and solely the work of God in regenerating his soul, bringing him up spiritually from death into life, enmity into favor, hostility into a love relationship. That is all the work of God in Christ Jesus. Paul knew that. Paul taught that. Paul preached that. Paul wrote that. That's humility. The humble man knows who he is because he knows who God is. If you don't know who God is in salvation, you don't know who you are. If you don't know who God is in salvation, you're a proud, puffed up individual. Not that you speak the truth, not that you're bold in speaking the truth, but it's all about you. You speak about you. Everything is about you. It's you-centered. It's me-ism, the me monster. Me, 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 me. It's all about me. Everything is about me. Because you don't know God. You don't know Him in salvation. If you did, you would be humble. Now, where there is a, the, the play on words, as it were, that Saul, King Saul, is told by Samuel, by the Lord, that when you were little in your own eyes, then I exalted you to king. When he was humble in his own eyes. When he didn't think more highly of himself than he ought to think. So just think about this. In the name, Paul speaks volumes to us about humility. Because Paul was little in his own eyes. He certainly was not little in intellect. He was a giant in intellect. He was a giant with regards to spiritual growth in understanding of the deep things of God which he communicates. But Paul is an apostle of Jesus Christ. Notice the word apostle. What is an apostle? Do we have apostles today? There, there were criteria that were given of who would be an apostle and who was not. And one of them is they had seen the risen Lord, was a disciple of Jesus Christ. They had, were witness to the resurrection of Christ. Paul was that. 
But there were, there were particular criteria that were given. Chosen by the Lord, walked with the Lord, saw the resurrection of Jesus Christ, commissioned by Christ to be His representative, His delegate. He was the one that sent them, commissioned them to write the teaching of Scripture. To give the revelation of God into pen and ink. Inscripturation. That's what an apostle was. He came with the authority of Christ. You see, that Paul had not been to Colossae and had not known uh, the church in Colossae by face. He gives his credentials. I am coming to you with the authority of Christ. Now we have Jesus saying this, He who hears you, hears me. He who hears me, hears him who sent me. So in other words, what Paul wrote in the inscripturation was God's word. So what Paul wrote is what God said. What scripture says, God says. And so he comes with that authority. He comes not with advice. He comes with particular commands. He is to be obeyed because as it is in truth, the word of God. Paul is the emissary, the ambassador of Christ with that particular authority. And he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. Uh, the genitive in, in the Greek construction there, meaning he belongs to Christ. He is the apostle that was set apart by the Lord Jesus Christ to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. You remember as he was redeemed on uh, the Emmaus Road, and this, or the uh, road to Damascus, this is exactly what happened. Uh, he knocked him down, and as he knocked him down, he put scales over his eyes, took him to Aeneas' house and Straight Street, and this is what he said. Uh, the Lord came to Aeneas and said, Saul is my chosen vessel, the one that I have chosen to bring the gospel to many. And I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. But he is my chosen vessel. And so it is that there was prayer that was given. And uh, there was, as it were, as the Apostle Paul was praying and scales fell from his eyes. And he went about as, with Barnabas who brought him to the other apostles, the right hand of fellowship, brought him in. And they recognized him. They recognized that he was the one, was a chosen vessel, that he was to go to the Gentiles. Christ picked him. This is what Paul says, by the will of God. Thelema, by the purpose of God, by the choosing of God, the choice of God. This was according to God. This wasn't according to nomination. It wasn't according to man. It was according to God. This wasn't man's choosing. It was by God's direction. He's getting that immediately out to show you his credentials that he doesn't come on his own accord. He comes in the authority of Christ. He brings that word uh, to the people of God. And who is with him? It's protege, Timothy. Timothy was a son in the faith. Timothy was one who was greatly loved by the Apostle Paul. He was the pastor at Ephesus. Clearly, Timothy had taken leave and had gone to Rome to be with the Apostle Paul in his imprisonment, to minister to him, to serve him. There was a great love that the two had. Timothy was of a Jewish descent and Gentile. His mother and grandmother, they were Jewish. His father was a Gentile. And so here's Timothy. He was timid. He was one who needed encouragement in the work of ministry. 
He was one who had to be told by the Apostle Paul as he had much infirmity. Take a little wine for your stomach's sake. Now think about the context of that. For medicinal purposes, that's what it was used for. Take a little bit of wine for your stomach's infirmity. No longer drink just water or, or maybe certain animals' milk, but have a little wine. Maybe that'll settle. Maybe that'll bring some healing uh, to your stomach. He was a sickly man. He could be tim- intimidated at times. Paul had to tell them, let nobody despise your youth. He had to be encouraged to not let people work around the gospel of Jesus Christ. But Timothy was a faithful brother. It's a great designation that he gives to him. A beloved one. Adolphos. A beloved, a beloved brother in Christ. One who is redeemed. So this is ordinarily, this is how ancient letters were written. He begins by who it is that's writing. He begins it also saying who it is that he's writing to or who is with him. And then he also gives the greeting to who he is writing to. And you find that in with the Apostle Paul. That's the structure of ancient literature. We don't use that today. Uh, you have to flip. If somebody wrote you a long letter, you have to flip to the back or see the, uh, if there's the, uh, the return address on the envelope to see who it is that wrote to you. But not in this ancient world. This is how they began the letter. So he's just following traditionally. That's how they wrote in that day. He's writing notice to the saints. Do you consider yourself a saint? I hear this a lot. I hear this with you. I hear this on the radio. I hear it on TV. Any type of Christian programming. This is what you hear. I'm just a sinner. I'm just a sinner. My problem is I'm just a sinner. That is not your identity in Christ. Do you understand that? Do you understand when we talk about sinners and saints, we are referring to particular categories? Do you understand when I speak of in Adam or in Christ, I'm speaking about a particular sphere, a category? Do you understand when I say that you are in darkness or you are in light, they are particular categories? You are a wheat, you are a tare, you are a sheep, you are a goat. Those are particular categories. And if you're in one, you can't be in the other. You can't be a sheep and part of a goat. You are a saint in Christ Jesus. That is your identity. It is not what Roman Catholicism said it is. It's not canonizing particular individuals from the past because of their saintlyhood and then raising them up to a certain status where they can be an example to us. The scripture doesn't teach that. All those who are engrafted into Christ are saints in Christ Jesus. You are holy ones. That's the Greek term. Hagios. You are the ones who have been set apart. You are the ones that are being sanctified by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. You are made more and more righteous by the working of the Holy Spirit in sanctification. But in justification, you are declared a saint in Christ Jesus, having been covered and clothed with His perfections. His perfect righteousness, 
holiness and satisfaction is imputed to to you and you are declared, you are seen, viewed, and treated in Christ as a saint, as a holy one, as if you had no inborn or actual sin, but had yourself accomplish all the obedience of the law. That's what our union with Christ does. It gives us our identity. You are not who you say you are. You are who God declares you to be. No more and no less. We are saints in Christ Jesus. And, Greek term chi is a coordinating conjunction. It brings them together. And it's interesting here because the apostle says, to the saints, uses a definite article there. And he doesn't use a definite article in front of the faithful brethren. So what that means is that the saints are faithful brethren. It just simply describes who they are. What does it mean that they're faithful? Well, it means they're believing. It's the Greek term pistos. That's what Paul is saying here. That they are believing brethren. They are those that believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. They believe that their salvation is in Christ and in Christ alone. They believe they have been redeemed from all the power of Satan and sin by the working of Jesus Christ. They believe they are being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. They believe there is a coming resurrection. They believe that all things are working together for good to those who love God, who are called according to His purpose. They believe that God is for them, and therefore, who can stand against them? They believe the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. They defend the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. They realize that there is power in the gospel as the Holy Spirit applies it to the lives of individuals. They are believing. They are believing all things in the scriptures. Whether they understand it or whether they don't, they know that the Bible is the inspired, inerrant, infallible word of the true and living God. That's the believing brethren. Are you one? Are you a believing brother or sister in Christ? Are you one who is believing the gospel? Are you one who is believing the promises of God? Are you believing you have no hope but Jesus Christ? Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, foul eye to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Is that what you're believing? Is that what you're trusting? Beloved, if you're not believing that, if you're not trusting that, then you need to question something of whether or not you're a saint and a believing brother. Because we are not redeemed to go rogue. We are not redeemed to believe and to trust in other philosophies. We are not redeemed to be syncretistic of bringing other things in to the gospel and embracing this and that. And I need faith, I need Jesus, I need the Bible, but I need these things too. It's a heresy. We're not redeemed by the working of the Holy Spirit to believe such things. What are you believing? Are you believing the promises of God? Because it's so easy then, isn't it, to believe and to trust in yourself. I do this, I did that, I went to this, I gave to this. And then you began building your life upon sand. You put on the fig leaves. 
You sing that song, everything in my hands I bring. I don't need to cling to the cross. I have what it takes. You notice something in the words of Isaiah? When the Lord wants to send one, who will go for us? Did you notice how Isaiah said it? Here am I. You know the significance of that? Here am I. He doesn't say, I'm here. That's what the arrogant do. That's what the prideful do. I'm here. I can't believe you're not looking at me. I'm here. Isaiah says, here am I. Send me. That's the humility that the Holy Spirit works in the heart of a believer. I must decrease. He must increase. Spurgeon said one of the hardest things for the church to sing is not unto us, not unto us, but unto your name we give glory. Because of sin we're glory hounds. Because of sin, we want the glory. Because of sin, we want the attention. Because of sin, we want to be recognized. We want to be acknowledged. We want the preeminence. Diotrephes, John speaks about him in uh, 2 John. Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence. He kept the apostles from coming into the church. So let me go back again and ask this question. Are you one of the saints and faithful in Christ Jesus? Because that's what the saints are. The saints are believers. They are believing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they are in Christ Jesus, united to him. He is the vine, we are the branches. We are united to him. He is in us, we are in him. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I live, but Christ lives in me. I in Him, He in me. That's what it means to be in Christ. Union with Christ. Identified with Christ. What Jesus did, He did in my place, in my stead, on my behalf, that has become mine. That's identity. That's union. Faith unites me to Christ in all of His benefits. So that when He lives, He lives for me. When He dies, He dies for me. In all the benefits that He did in His life and death belong to me. That's union with Christ. That's my identity with Christ. I am forgiven. I am free. I have life everlasting in Jesus Christ. Outside of Him is death and destruction. In Him is life and love and light and liberty. All the blessings in the heavenly places, where are they? In Christ Jesus. you got to know, beloved. you got to know whether or not you're in Christ. If you're not in Christ, you abide in death. If you're not in Christ, you're under the wrath of God. If you're not in Christ, you're a child of the devil. If you're not in Christ, you don't know the truth. If you're not in Christ, you're lost. You have got to hear the call of the gospel to believe on Jesus Christ. 
to look to Him to abandon all hope in anything, in any other thing, or any philosophy, position, psychology, theology, all of it. You've got to look to Christ and to Him alone. If you look to anything other than Jesus, you're an idolater. God has revealed Himself to us in His Son, who speaks in these last days through His Son. Look nowhere. Keep your eyes focused upon Christ. Come to Him. That's what Jesus said. Let me ask you children. Do you think you're going to heaven because of your parents? You don't get to heaven because of your parents. You don't get into heaven on the coattails of somebody else. Faith is non-transferable. Your parents can't give you faith. That is a supernatural work of the Spirit of God. Are you in Christ? Saints in Christ, and they are also at Colossae. Because we're heavenly minded, we're earthly good. Because we have our mind in heaven, where our flesh is, Christ, who is our head, then we are productive here on this earth. We are salt, we are light, we are preservative. We bring the gospel, we bring the good news. We are constructive here on this earth. We do good things in this world for the glory of God. We're in Christ and we're in Sutton. We're in Christ and they were in Colossae. Does your life in Sutton demonstrate that you're in Christ? Does your light so seen among men that they will come to glorify your Father in heaven? Do you win others also by your godly walk? Paul then closes this greeting and he says, Grace to you in peace. Now, as I told you before, there is a sanctifying grace, there's a justifying grace. He is speaking about the sanctifying grace of being more and more conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. That's the grace of God at work in sanctification. Paul pronounces that blessing upon them, that they would be further sanctified, further grow in grace, further conformed into the image of Jesus Christ, and peace. Peace we have with God, and therefore peace among ourselves. Peace among the community in which we live. That's hard, isn't it? It's hard. We desire peace. We desire to be peacemakers. But there's always somebody. There is always somebody. In the church, outside of the church. It's troublemakers. Stirs up problems. Causes problems. It doesn't allow for peace and rest and comfort and tranquility. It's always stirring up. The water is always turning. Paul is pronouncing this blessing of peace. Grace and peace. Two that go together. Because when you have the grace of God in salvation, then the grace of God in sanctification produces the peace of God in the soul of the believer. And it's from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This epistle is dealing with heirs, but the apostle also addresses uh, great virtues that are in the life of the church. But there is always within the life of the church the instruction to furtherance, to grow, to be built up, to stand firm, to put off, to put on. That's a continuum. None of us has graduated. None of us has arrived. We are a work in progress. Keep on running the race set before you. 
Keep on looking unto Jesus. He alone is the author and the perfecter of our faith. Amen. Shall we pray?